Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. Today, I'd like to play you an interview. Uh, it's been conducted by Anthony Leckis uh, from the show Triple Bypass on radio station Joy FM. Uh, Joy FM, by the way, is this uh, radical little uh, community radio station uh, based here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, but they are uh, also available as a podcast um, for all of their shows. Um, yeah, and they uh, do an amazing job of servicing, let's say, alternative identities and sexualities and things like that. Uh, so the interview is with uh, myself and Tess. Um, as becomes clear in the content of this interview, uh, Tess is a partner of mine and also runs Connectable Therapies, uh, which is a practice uh, relating to occupational therapy, specialising in sexuality. Uh, Tess also facilitates quite a lot of Curious Creatures things with me. Uh, this interview was recorded almost a year ago. My oh my, how things have changed. Uh, and it's uh, mostly, well, it's ostensibly about polyamory. However, I think there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in here for everyone, um, including monogamous uh, and single folks, because, uh, you know, what makes for good um, relationships in poly has a lot of crossover with what makes for good um, other forms of relationships. So let's get into it. Yes, you're on Joy 94.9 and you're on another bi-polycast with Anthony. Firstly, I want to say happy bi-viz day to everyone who celebrated by Bisexual Visibility Day on the 23rd of September. And to those who went to the Big Buy Bonanza at Kensington Town Hall, I hope you had a blast. It was a great day. And to be in a building full of bisexuals was something. So um, I hope everyone enjoyed it. Welcome again to this podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to two fabulous people, Tess and Roger, um, from a place called Curious Creatures, where they do all sorts of things. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. But firstly, I want to say, Tess and Roger, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for the invite. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so maybe, can I start with you, Rog? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name's Roger Butler. Uh, I started Curious Creatures about uh, six or seven years ago, uh, just with the intention of skill sharing information about sexuality and communication, and things have just grown and expanded. Uh, we now run about 20 different workshops, ranging from uh, reasonably accessible entry level through to fairly adventurous, and um, yeah, I'm delighted to have taught about 10,000 people. Wow. And I have a background more in counselling than anything else. Fantastic. And Tess, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, my name is Tess. I am ethically non-monogamous. I'm an occupational therapist and I specialise in sexuality in neurological, musculoskeletal and oncological streams. And I have been a co-facilitator at Curious Creatures for four years, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And Roger and I co-created um, the non-monogamy workshop together that's just been released. 
Fantastic. So well, I'm really interested in the non-monogamy workshop uh, throughout every month of this year. We've released the podcast where we've, talk, we've talked about different aspects of non-monogamy. But I, I don't know how accessible and how visible workshops are for people who want to do something sort of formal and maybe more, more, more deliberate for their relationships or their thinking or, the, or their ideas about entering into the non-monogamy space. What's it been like to put this particular workshop together and what's the response been like? I think you're right. I think there's not a huge amount of formal or great information out there. There are some good books, but workshops not so much. And I know for myself, uh, my learning around polyamory or non-monogamy all just came through happenstance of being in the right relationships with the right people and, you know, having a couple of crash and burns and learning a few lessons the uh, interesting way. Uh, and so this for me is very much the, the workshop that I wish I'd had access to in younger years. I think it's the workshop we both wish we had in much <laughs> younger years. Another thing that we find accessible is that in the workshop, we're actually not telling you the right way to do anything. We're giving you the school, the skills and information to perhaps be able to figure out what might be right for you and that if it is right for you, then that is perfect and there is not one right way to do non-monogamy. So when we talk about non-monogamy in this particular workshop, and we'll give the listeners some information on where they can access more details and how to contact you, but what are we talking about when you say non-monogamy in that workshop? So essentially what we refer to um, throughout the workshop is uh, the two umbrella terms. So we have the umbrella term monogamy, um, which is exclusive with a partner, but there's many models under that. And then we also refer to ethical or non-monogamy, which is the umbrella term for the many non-monogamy type models that fit under that umbrella term. Polyamory is definitely one of those terms, multiple loving and possibly sexual relationships. There's swinging, there's anarchy. Yep, there's a whole, whole list. So we prefer to use the language non-monogamy because we find it a lot more inclusive to people who are trying to figure out what's right for them. They might realise through our workshop that they're actually more geared towards being uh, open with their partner rather than committing to polyamory, which is a lovely thing to be able to find out. And to be invited to consider because we have some rules, don't we, these unconscious scripts, these unquestioned uh, assumptions about how we do intimacy and relationships with usually one per other person. So we kind of um, uh, upset uh, social structures and, 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 and family members, don't we? <laughs> um, yeah, we really do. I, I think um, in monogamy world, there's kind of one off-the-shelf standard model that everyone's meant to subscribe to and it's, you know, fall in love, obviously, ideally in a heterosexual kind of a way and uh, move in together, uh, get some financial commitments and maybe some kids and things like that and that's like the standard model, which works for some monogamous people, but it really doesn't work for a whole lot of other folks. And likewise, I think in the non-monogamous world, um, there's a bit of a bit of a sense that there's a particular model of poly that everyone should be into, and it's just not for everyone. There's a whole scale, there's a whole spectrum. I like the way you described it, Tess. One of the things that I find is that people who are poly often feel, you know, I feel like I'm speaking for them now, but the, the sense that I get in them is that some people don't feel entitled to request things of their partner, particularly around being sort of emotionally or even physically available for them when they're spending time with another partner. And I know like it's 
not a one size fits all. People in relationships work out how autonomous and how sort of dependent they are, they can and can't be, and all that sort of stuff. What do you have to say about those sorts of conversations in the workshop? I guess what I was wondering is, um, I'm thinking I didn't use the word relationship anarchists, but because mm. um, I don't know a lot about relationship anarchy, but I like the fact that they challenge their assumptions and what entitlements they bring to relationships. A really mm. respectful way of creating some space to take responsibility for your own stuff. But I wonder about at what point is it okay to expect your partner to respond to your needs, to be there for you, to not go out on that date because I'm feeling particularly vulnerable tonight? And Well, I think in some ways relationships or any combination of two people is like a monumental game to work out if you can find out what particular model and structure of relating works for you. And in a lot of cases, codify that in agreements. Uh, so those agreements would include things like, uh, are you allowed to veto my partners or are you allowed to veto particular actions or are you even allowed to veto a particular date night with a particular partner? And one of the things I enjoy unpicking in the workshop we run is working out the different levels of responsibility. So if you imagine, I always think of it as three circles in a row. At the top, you've got yourself, and then below that, you've got your main partner that you're with, and then below that, you've got an extra person who you might be jealous of or who you have concerns about. And if you're having an experience of jealousy or insecurity, um, potentially you can pick apart any one of those three people could change and it might be it might have a positive impact on your jealousy, but ultimately you don't have any governance over anyone else. The only one you have authority over is yourself. Hmm. Um, but it's useful to look at the three layers because sometimes other people are doing things that are, say, outside of agreements or that uh, don't quite feel right. But ultimately, all you can do is offer your requests to other people. And if it's right for them to meet those requests, then yay. And if not, I guess you need to make decisions and see where that goes. Such a huge part of the workshop is communication. And I'm not going to lie. Um, We can be quite blunt. Um, Delivery is everything. So we have a lot of content around ways to address how you're feeling rather than it's all about the I statements and I'm feeling this and can we please talk about this and having a really, really good conversation around perhaps I'm feeling insecure about how much time you're spending with your new partner. Can we please talk about this? And the response rather than defensiveness, we practice saying, thank you so much for letting me know how you feel. I would love to talk to you about this. I'm still going to go on my date, but open my calendar book. Let's schedule some time together. So we go through a lot of um, little tips, tips around the communication side of things. We also have a very long suggested five-step program on how to introduce new relationships into already existing ones. Mm, yeah, you can't just dive right in the deep end and have that work out well. <laughs> slowly, slowly, slowly. <laughs> well, there's, there's, yeah, well, I think there's a case of couple privilege when someone steps into an already pre-existing, you know, significant uh, bonding process that's already been established and is being sort of looked after and then to try and step into that and to declare some um, of your own needs can be really tricky. Uh, I'm just very mindful that my partners would be listening to this and be aware of what I'm talking about. I drew those circles, Rog. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm drawing diagrams as we're talking. So, so okay, so great so communication in the workshops, taking ownership for your own feelings without um, expecting people to rush in to get rid of those feelings because those feelings are really important, you know, aren't they? We're not trying to sort of stop people from being human beings. <laughs> and to a degree you can sort of tap them as a source of information and usefulness. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to silver line the whole jealousy process, but um, 
oftentimes there's good, useful information in there around things that you need to do differently or things that you need to ask for differently. Um, but it is very hard to frame... I'll speak in the first person. It's hard for me to frame and see my jealousy uh, as a beneficial, positive thing waiting to happen. You know, in the moment, it's a little <laughs> trickier than that. <laughs> yes, in the moment is uh, is a different ballgame. <laughs> the stakes are when the heat gets turned up. You know, so people coming to your workshops. I guess this workshop is designed not as a sort of poly or ethical non-monogamous 101 necessarily. We're in there discussing the nitty gritty of of those discussions around looking after people's sense of security in, in that relationship or that whoever they're paired with? It's actually both. So it's a full day. Um, we do call it a deep dive for a reason. So we start out with the basics. So we talk about language, we talk about the types of different relationship models, and it's quite the information session. Then we start to deep dive into things like the agreements coming out, new relationship energy, and then we'll get into communication and jealousy. So it it does have quite the arc and it does start quite simple and informative to give everyone uh-huh. the foundational knowledge. It's designed to be accessible for anyone. So anyone who is hearing the word polyamorous and wants to know what that means and if it's right for them versus people who have been in non-monogamous dynamics for a decade and are thinking maybe they could figure out a way to do something better. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. A new relationship energy. Can you say more about that? It's a drug. <laughs> it actually has been compared to cocaine in, in a study. Um, judgment does get it affected. Um, the new stages in a relationship where we're, we're deep diving into the connection of someone. We're so excited. Everything they do is beautiful and amazing and everything about them, the way they dress, what they say, their jokes, their job, it's all amazing. It's tricky. Um, we've all had that friend who's fallen in love and we notice their absence, but in non-monogamy, it's the partners that feel the absence. Mm. So it can be quite hurtful. Mm. So in the workshop, we definitely talk about it. Um, And again, it just comes down to communication as in ways to discuss, hi, I'm noticing your absence. I, I miss you. I love you. Can we please talk about this? And thank you so much for letting me know how you're feeling. And, and I, I would really love to sit down and and be there with you, setting reminders in your phone to have date nights in case you forget because you're so off your head on NRE. (laughs) And I think uh, it's one of those things that gets easier with time. Oftentimes I think the first stages of moving into open relationships or poly are the hardest because more challenges and issues are coming up for you and you don't yet necessarily have runs on the board and skills around how to do things. And I think one of the things you get over the course of time is more knowledge about how you behave when you're in NRE. So when you're on that altered states experience that lasts for sort of three to maybe 12 months. And you also get runs on the board in terms of knowing what it looks like in your partner. And as um, one of my earlier partners said to me, you know, you get to know it and you just sit back a little bit and you go, it's all right. They're going to be a little bit funny for a couple of months and then they'll be back. And mm. sure enough. Th- that self-talk and that conversation that the individual has to have with themselves, I guess, can't just occur straight away. I'm imagining there needs to have been some sort of discussion or or something that gets looked after so that that person then feels okay to have that discussion. Because I guess if there isn't something to hang on to, something that's been worked on, a sense of feeling valued and focused on and important to to hang on to while your other partner goes off to get, you know, high as a kite on dopamine. Because the new relationship experience is amazing and in poly relationships or ethical non-monogamous relationships it gets really complicated because there's someone who could be suffering or not having a great time so there's this complicated 
experience of just stepping into a new space and enjoying the NRE, and but also wondering, shit, I know my other partner's sort of struggling a bit with this. And God, how do you enjoy the night out at the movies? That is actually a really tricky one. And for people that are newer to the polyamorous or non-monogamous scene, we're wired to be so focused on that one person that while we're in your relationship energy, remembering to focus on the other is so difficult at times. So I feel like it is actually a muscle and it just needs to be worked on. And it and it took me some time. It was actually quite tricky for me to get used to. That was one of my greater challenges of entering non-monogamy, I think, managing that. Can I ask you about your personal relationships? How do you define your relationship setups? I fit under the banner of Relationship anarchist slash polyamorous slash sometimes swinger. I believe I fit well under the banner of relationship anarchist. Other identities, I go with a tantric, polyamorous, slutty bitch, (laughs) uh, also a sex worker and... Yeah. I thought I'd end up with relationship anarchists in the room at some point. They're here. <laughs> they have arrived. It's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> um, some of the stuff that you've described uh, in terms of what you deliver to the workshops, and it doesn't come, just come from theory and gathering evidence and information through your work. I'm, I, I'm imagining that lived experience also gives you some other crucial information on living it, you know what I mean? Living it and with all the other information gives you an edge to delivering this work, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think there, I think there has to be. Um, and just to expand a little on relationship anarchist, uh, I, think, I think titles are useful but it can also be confusing. So my version of that is that uh, – so Tess and I, we're in relationship, I think that's fair to say. Uh, we have uh, nothing in the way of promises or commitments or I will love you forever because for me personally I feel like that's fraught. You can't promise the future. And yet I am so deeply, profoundly committed to this person. Uh, we've just been through a whole cancer journey together, which if ever there was going to be a test in terms of is this just some like dirty little fling um, before moving on to the next exciting piece of flesh. Uh, yeah, if ever there was a test to that, that's nothing quite like a deep dive into cancer. So. I feel, um, yeah, astoundingly present and committed without any of those usual promises in place. And that for me is the joy of, um, yeah, relationship anarchy. I feel like something that I encounter a lot in the under the relationship anarchist label is that people expect me to not be loyal or loving or caring when in actual fact I'm an extremely caring, loving person, um, but I, I will not have expectations and conditions of you. And I think that that is my personal fit under that label. Again, in the workshop, we have this little saying where we say, your relationship model is like an outfit, try it on and see if it fits. If it doesn't fit, that's okay. Maybe make some tweaks and adjustments, but you don't have to try an entirely new outfit. So these outfits represent labels. So there might be lots of labels out there and types of models, but if you choose the model first, it might actually end up shaping the way you behave in relationship rather than what suits you. Mm. So we're, we're a little cautious to use um, the words that might describe how we act, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. I think that makes a lot of sense as a poly person as well, because I too went in with this idea of what ethical non-monogamy and labels and the roles and, and fantasies about how my metamors would be such best friends and they'd join Christmas dinners and and then all of a sudden we were all trying it on for size and we had to reshuffle some things and it wasn't so smooth and we had that was what the arrangement was and we had to think carefully about 
not sort of nudging it and forcing it in a particular direction. And that was tricky because we come in with expectations and when I say fantasies, I'm talking about the the wishes and dreams that we have for how the relationship will turn out and, and how we'll all get along. And I had this image that we'd have family meetings once a week. <laughs> I love it's it. not happening and that's you know, that doesn't need to, but and we're in a really great place as well because we've just had a child and so we're all thrilled right now. So can I ask about relationship anarchy? Because I think people hear the word anarchy and they make there's all sorts of connotations attached to that word. But my understanding is that it is about the deep respect and responsibility people take for themselves and what they bring to the relationships and are very mindful about what they may or may not impose on the other person. So that's the area I I struggle in because I guess I use when I think about an attachment frame and how turning to a significant attachment figure for something, for a response to an emotional need. What I understand about attachment theory is that the individual with that need is it's valid to expect that person to respond. It doesn't mean that that person is going to be available to respond or even respond in the way that meets that particular need, but the expectation helps to create some sort of bridge or connection to that person. When we talk about relationship anarchy or other forms of ethical non-monogamy, the individual sort of checks that expectation a bit. Not that you can't have the expectation, but do, do you know what I'm saying? I'm so, There's this delicate sort of boundary that I'm sort of wondering about. Yeah, uh, I, I like what you're saying. I like what you're saying before about how you noticed that you had dreams and visions for your constellation and then uh, my words not yours there's a little bit of a lag time as you notice that hey things aren't working out quite like that let's readjust our vision and I guess for me anarchy outside of the concept of relationships is about freedom uh, but also about responsibility Uh, so it's not pretending that you're alone and isolated and don't answer to anyone Um, but it's uh, yeah working out how to do that well and thoroughly. And it's also a little around breaking down social norms. So for me, when I put that in the relationship context, it is very much around self-responsibility, seeing relationships as a learning journey for myself, always fronting up with the best version of myself. One of the things I love about anyone I'm in relationship with where there's no lifelong commitment, they can leave me at any stage, which provides me with a good motivation to front up with my best game. (laughs) And I've been in a couple of relationships in the past going back a long way and I feel like I've ruined two relationships by saying, you are my life partner, I'll be with you forever. And we've said that to each other and it's so beautiful in the moment and then no one does their inner work anymore. Sometimes there are things that I want to ask or suggest or chew over with a partner, um, but first and foremost has to be my inner work and taking responsibility for my role in things. So if I'm feeling jealous, for instance, just because that's a great theme to riff on, I like to first really pick that apart and understand what that's about and make whatever changes I need to make within myself first. And then if there's something I want to take to a partner by way of saying, I think you might be doing something which might be contributing to my jealousy, like what are your thoughts on this? then so be it. But yeah, myself first and foremost. My my, um, way of being in relationship with the sort of values and ideas I have around polyamories, the the checking the self part is really important, it sounds like. You know, what are my responsibilities here? I'm feeling jealous or or threatened by this uh, other relationship or whatever, as opposed to going straight to the relationship. We We both have a responsibility here to respond to this jealousy that's come up. Um, because it's come up in the context of this relationship. So how does the relationship respond? I think what you're saying is that that's, that can be the case also, but there's this sort of um, initial step for the individual to ask themselves some questions or something. 
I'm, I'm just going to dive into jealousy a little bit now that we're here. We talk about jealousy a lot on this show. <laughs> right. So we, um, through our experience and through the literature out there and books and podcasts, we, we've come to determine that there are around six major forms of jealousy. So the way that we break it down is there's envy. You might want what someone else has. There's insecurity or low self-esteem. There's fear, like a fear of rejection um, or fear of the unknown, um, feeling excluded, possessiveness and empty jealousy, which is when you feel like you should be jealous but you're not or when people are trying to convince you that you should be when you're not. And the way that we kind of operate and what we promote in the workshop is trying to sort the way that you're feeling and having thinking into that and maybe seeing if it aligns with one of those categories like, oh, I'm actually just feeling a little bit insecure. I'm feeling left out. Okay. So why am I feeling left out? Mm, Because I'm really sick and I miss my partner. Okay. So what can I do? Right. I'm going to call them and say, can we please organize a date that's really low energy? I really miss you and I'm feeling left out. That's my Vulcan Mm. processing of jealousy. Yeah. I'm I'm quite quick at that. Um, Yeah. I'm one of those people that don't actually experience that much jealousy, hence my anarchy label. Um, But I can process it quite quickly by applying those those things. And I think through living it and being in it and spending so much time in the polyethical non-monogamy space, we, we develop different relationships with some of, some of these experiences that come up and, and, and they might shift and feel less intense and edgy and, and that might actually end up feeling something else. Like um, we might be thrilled about our partners um, spending time with their new love relationship and that sort of stuff. So these aren't sort of fixed positions in sort of stepping into poly setups that they can change and they can um, yeah, be experienced differently. Yeah, I'd really agree. Like, again, I don't want to put, try and put a, too much of a silver lining around it, but I have been a substantially jealous person and uh, from time to time uh, that comes up again. But I've learned so much more about independence and my own self-worth through working on jealousy. Yeah, we learn a lot about ourselves in relationships. We learn even more about ourselves in poly relationships. I I think in a perfect world, all relationships would be learning relationships like that and everyone would have that that level of self-responsibility. But I think possibly in the monogamous model, you can sort of bob along on the default mode a little more easily. I think polyamory pushes you, forces you, encourages, supports you um, to get a little more engaged uh, with what you're doing in relationships. I don't really feel like you could get away with just winging it (laughs) in polyamory. Well, that's really beautiful. I I agree that that there's something about the default position. And and I was, you know, I'm in my 40s now, but in my 20s when I was in monogamous relationships, yeah, there's a lot of winging it and a lot of very unexamined entitlements and expectations. And it wasn't till I got to ethical non-monogamy land that I looked around and just experienced some gorgeous and lovely conversations and ways that people took care of each other. Even if one partner feels let down by me changing the way, and changing plans can have all sorts of uh, uh, impacts depending on the day and what it is. But, um, you know, changing plans to spend time with uh, my other partner for a different reason, if that wasn't part of the deal for that day or whatever, because you, you both mentioned schedules and times and all that stuff is very important, right? Yes, it is very important for us as well. Even though we say we're anarchists, we have an expectation and an agreement within our relationship dynamic that is you don't ever cancel a date for a better offer. 
because that's just bad manners. Okay. Well, I'm a bad-mannered person in the anarchy world. <laughs> no, you just have different agreements to us. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> I'm coming Everything to the... perfect. <laughs> I'll sign up for the agreements workshop this week, I promise. <laughs> Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. This is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. Um, no, but I guess what I was going to say is all of us, and there's three of us, and I'm the hinge person in, the, in, in my relationship, that we all get that this is complicated. It can be complicated that we don't have a supportive culture or even an easy go-to answer for some things that come up that might change the shift the goalposts. Because there's something about all of us knowing that. It doesn't mean I get let off the hook or anyone gets let off the hook. It just means that, okay, we get it. This is messy sometimes. People take so much care with those sorts of considerations, thinking of the other person, you know, what might this be like for them? And you think that, I mean, that we would do that anyway. And I'm sure I did as a monogamous person, but there's just this lovely engagement, as you said, with some of those dynamics and boundaries and um, these considerations for everyone. I've, um, I've tried many monogamous models. One of them included marriage. And I'm just really hearing what you're saying. And again, Rog, what you said before around the non-monogamy and polyamory really make creates the the dialogue between people and then that consideration of how is this for you because this is how I'm feeling and in in the monogamous models I've done throughout my life it was just all assumption and expectation and now I can't even believe my relationships lasted then as long as they did. Mm, absolutely. And I think that there, there's something about the way that, I mean, jealousy is the easy thing to talk about. Well, no, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but it's it's the thing that, I, th- I think it's the thing that non-poly people bring up the most when they ask questions. And it's one of the things that I keep learning is that to sit with each other's feelings without having to race in to stop them from feeling that thing, you know, about we have to all change our behaviour so that this one individual stops feeling that thing that they're feeling and just to slow it down and just to allow fears to be expressed because there's something about connecting with my partner's fear, as shitty as it makes me feel, and then I I do automatically in my head go to, all right, I've got to fix it, okay, I won't go to that thing. And But if I just slow down and, and sit with their fear and to get a sense of what they're trying to tell me, what they are telling me, then that does help to influence some of my future planning and thinking and discussions I have with my other partner because we were all interested in making sure that nobody is harmed emotionally or in any other way. It's a really delicate balancing act of working out what's a nice, understanding, compassionate response to a partner and what's unfair on another date. So if we go back to the three circles model and you're the one in the middle, so as you say, like in a hinge or in the centre point of a V relationship, Um, If, say, a primary partner, and I don't love that language, but it's useful as a descriptor, if a primary partner is feeling jealous and you then 
out of compassion for that cancel a date with a third partner um, that might look like it's being good and compassionate and supportive to the main partner. But, geez, it's rough on the third party on mm. the other date because through no fault or action of theirs, um, yeah, their, their joy is being impacted upon. And also if that starts to become a pattern or a dynamic, then frustration is going to build up within the person in the middle of the V in that their their relationship situation is starting to be patterned um, around insecurities or jealousy. And that might be all right. It might just suggest that a kind of a different model of polyamory is needed. So maybe not so much hardcore relationship anarchy, maybe more like an open relationship or, or some slightly different structure might be waiting to happen. And that's where I think looking into jealousy is a really useful process because it can help you to go, you know what, I'm not up for that hardcore version of events or vice mm. versa. Can, can I uh, thank you for sharing about the health issues that came up. Can I ask some questions about that? Is that all right? Yeah, definitely. But how can other partners compete with a life and death issue with one partner when you turn to that person to spend time to ha- – how do you call – to your partner when you're the person in such a vulnerable place when you're trying to look after their other relationships as well. How, how did that work? Um, I love your question. It sounds, when you said the word, how do other partners compete, um, my experience was more how do other partners contribute and collaborate because that was more my experience. Nice. So I found it uh, an incredible relief to have um, other partners that I could go to for support and for sex and for something outside of the cancer journey uh, so that then I could come back fully. And my other partners identified as being able to help Tess and support Tess by supporting me. Uh, So making my life a little, giving me little breaks and giving me support. So I had quite a few dates with my other partners, which just consisted of them giving me massages so that I could then come back and be a better support with Tess. So for me, it was collaborate rather than compete. And was that their intention? That was absolutely squarely their intention. They were very aware and did it all very intentionally Uh and would send messages to Tess through me because Tess wasn't so much taking messages at the time uh, that that was their intention and that's what they were doing. Right. With When I I was initially diagnosed... um, the moment I left the doctor's office, the words possibly terminal were used. I rang a partner. Um, I told her and she immediately said, call Rog. And so I rang Rog and they both immediately came to my house. We sat down and all three of us held hands and we cried together. And then we immediately started planning, how can we support you? It was we always. Um, my other partner, she was absolutely incredible through chemotherapy. It was amazing for me to have the relief that I knew that my other partners were getting laid and I was so unwell that I had so much pain and I was so nauseous. Sometimes I I just, the sex just was off the table and then there would be shame and guilt and then I would hear about my partner's dates and I would be so happy and it was part relief and huge amounts of compersion but I was also just living vicariously through them. Mm. And I was like, tell me about your date, please. How are your partners? Tell me everything. It was really beautiful and I saw the support that you both had around me. Um, Some days they would both pick me up and we'd go out to distract me from chemotherapy and I could see that it was helping you as well as her to have other people to go to. It wasn't all me. It's it's a nasty business and you you need supports. Carers need support. 
and they needed the separation. So it was really beautiful. Sounds like you all showed up for each other in as best as you could. And I'm just wondering about th- this sort of community of support because families can provide that for each other. For someone who is going through a, a health life issue and the family gets around and organises, you know, who's going to sort of take around some dinner and, and who's going to check in with them today. We have some roles and some sort of ideas and thinking about who plays certain roles in families to do that, right? Um, When it comes to adult intimate relationships, I I wonder about how specifically that was negotiated and how you, who you asked for support, how you did that, who, if there were some expectations that you are focused on in a particular way. It was a really tricky one. So all of my family live interstate and due to other not so great health concerns were unable to come over. But from the moment of my diagnosis, my two partners said, I'm here for you. This is what I'm offering. This is how I can support you and care for you. So it actually was a a minimal amounts of my asking. It was about my saying yes and no to the offers I was receiving. So I had to navigate how much support I could handle rather than having to find it. That's nice. That was the benefit. And yeah, in polyamory, there's that myth Um, Some people externally think that more relationships means less love. More does not mean Mm. less. More means more. Yeah. If it's going well. um, Yeah, it was amazing. And I like how you mentioned the parallel with uh, families because I think in the family context, we all understand that we can love more than one person and have a relationship with more than one people. We do that on a familial level uh, a lot. And in days gone by, uh, we used to, like the family was more of an extended family model. You might have 10, 15, 20 people that were very close and related one way or another. Um, the idea of loving all of those people is not confusing or challenging. Um, yes. And yes, concerns and, and jealousy within the family come up and uh, sometimes competition and so forth and those things need to be worked on. But yeah, I, I think um, in some ways the idea of loving more than one person is already pretty familiar to us. Reminds me a little like yes. listening to you, Tess, talk about the cancer journey reminds me of a little bit what it can be like for kids. Um, and it's just sometimes when it works well, it just means there's more supports around, more role models, more opportunities and excuses for the adults to get a moment of time to themselves <laughs> and act like adults. Yes, yes. So thank you for sharing that and sending you both uh, positive buy and poly vibes to, to you both. Yeah, so, thank you. <laughs> I guess we, we sort of look into the world and we try and find some language and ideas that help us to make sense of how we do polyamory and family is a word I like to use as well. And we made some conscious decisions, partner who's the other biological parent of our child, that we wouldn't forget to remind each other that we um, loved and care about each other and thought about each other because it's an easy thing to do just to talk about our, our son, you know, mm. oh, him this and him that and him this. And what shape would we be in as parents if we're not reminding each other that we're all so valued and that we, we're all so important to each other and, and, and that we're constantly talking about our other partners and how we look after that because there's, I can ve- very much relate to in terms of the cancer story around for our son, we all need to really get our shit together. On a good day, we're great at it. On a bad day, you know, we'll, we'll, it'll be wobbly. But, but yeah, about getting it right together so that everyone can experience the, the environment as positive. And in some ways, bringing a kid into the mix is like the ultimate in your relationship energy. Uh, obviously it's a different style of relationships that are there for different purposes. But, uh, yeah, you fall adorably totally in love with this new person in your life and they take up an extraordinary amount of energy. And so 
all parents, uh, whether that's in a monogamous context or a single parent or a polyamorous community of parents, um, have a little sense of losing uh, losing their normal partner um, mm. to the arrival of the child. And yeah, I, 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 my heart goes out to you now yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the, navigating that and staying connected. But it's the poly space that's reminded us that we still need to look after each other because, yeah, it can be the easy thing to do for all of us to focus on this child and to forget to check in with each other because we're all busy looking after Ari. And I think it's because of what we've rehearsed as poly people with trying to keep each other on the radar, each other's needs on the radar. It's helped us to, yes, centre the child as often as possible, but that doesn't mean at the expense of everyone else feeling important and valued, you know. Nice. So polyamory's been a good training to be a parent. Yes, definitely. Oh, wow, that's nice, yes. Fortune cookie that. (laughs) That's another workshop. So talking about your personal lives as poly folk, can I Ask about some of the challenges because I think that, you know, for people listening and perhaps those who are considering opening up their relationship or stepping into the poly community, people come in with anxieties and worries as well as some, you know, ideas about how how cool it can be. But I guess what I hear mostly is about some of the challenges and worries. But are there other are there other things that have that have been challenging that have has required some sort of deliberate care and focus? Yeah, something that comes to mind for me uh, that I found challenging and repeated a couple of times is falling for people who weren't really into poly but were either trying it out or were actually more into me and were willing to pretend to be poly in order to get to the thing they wanted. Uh which um, seems like a real generous, beautiful move for about eight weeks. <laughs> and then it just inevitably crashes and burns yes. because that person then wants to start claiming me in a more monogamous way. Or the other pattern that I found a little bit was um, being in uh, a relationship, a close uh, longer-term relationship with someone uh, who ultimately realised that they probably weren't poly and that's fine, full respect to them for realising that. But as a consequence to patch around that, we wound up with an incredibly extensive list of agreements. Like as a document, it would have ran to many, many pages. And it got to the point where I just couldn't move or couldn't go on dates without breaking one of those agreements because they were just so detailed and so technical and so extensive around permissions. So um, a few of those experiences there for me of just getting better at spotting when someone's into genuinely into poly and when they're not. And it's not to say that one can never date people who haven't been in the lifestyle for a long period of time. It's just for me a question of going in with eyes open and uh, just being really careful about managing my affections and theirs. Right. And I think because we do want to take seriously other people's anxieties about stepping into this space, agreements are really important. And then it sounds like the agreements became something else, a function of stopping perhaps you from being poly because poly was really anxious for them or something. Yes, yes. Um, th- those times uh where uh, I, I realised after the point in time where we'd fallen in love with each other um, and when they start, that started to become a constrictive relationship, it's horrible. Like uh, either I'm going to be forced out of poly or the other person's going to be forced out of mono. Um, forced is not a great word uh, when it comes to relationships. Uh, so, yeah, that was displeasing. 
And yeah, the the agreements, you're absolutely right. They were uh, restrictive. Uh, so things like me needing to send a text message to log off from that relationship 15 minutes before a date began. The date was only allowed to happen on agreed terms within agreed bounds. Certain things were allowed to happen. Certain things were not. No venturing outside uh, of that. Did you have a chart, a timesheet? Yeah, effectively. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love how you giggle like you're joking, but... <laughs> Actually, I think one of the really tough moments for me was when I found the poly community in Melbourne and started um, exploring uh, non-monogamous models. And then I realised as my communication and consent just got so much better, I'd actually realised how poor I had poorly I'd behaved in past relationships in when I was monogamous. Um, I've cheated. I've lied. I've felt that there was something wrong with me my whole life because I was capable of having interest in multiple people and um, it was really, really hard for me. I, I felt like I was a deep stepping into this beautiful, amazing new world and at the same time had so much guilt and shame from not finding it sooner but also realising that I'd made so many mistakes and could have done things so much better. That was really hard for me but also finding my model was really difficult. It took me eight years to figure out how I work in a non-monogamous polyamorous capacity. And um, it was really tricky. And to anyone out there, it can take some time. It can take work. Please just be open and honest and respectful and and people won't get hurt. And I think that's a, something that we can perhaps all relate to, not that I'm speaking for the entire poly community, but I hear this a bit around we sometimes stumble across some the the monogamous sort of inverted commas rules and the sorts of expectations that come with monogamy before we start to think well well what are some other options on doing love and intimacy here and what because I could relate to some of that you know we realised that there was a different frame there was a different model or a different way of doing it that didn't mean that we were breaking some deep relationship law and that you deserve to be punished for it. You know? Uh, I hate the word infidelity. I've I've come across that word a, a few times I've, with people talking about their relationship struggles, and I hear the word infidelity, and I think, oh, it sounds so sounds so biblical. <laughs> I think we don't know what we don't know, and we don't realise when we start out in poly just how profoundly deeply ingrained all of that monogamy training is and it's not even good monogamy training most of the time like what we get from tvs and movies and so forth it's often a really insecure jealousy based insecure form of monogamy like life can be better than that but we don't realize how deep that goes so even at this if you imagine you're say a couple and uh you're in the process of opening up and one of you's gone out on a date um it's almost impossible for that person that's gone out on the date to not feel guilty and it's almost impossible for the other partner to not want to um hassle them out trip them out a little bit on that one because the training around that around surely this is an affair surely it's wrong it just goes so deep so i think it takes um yeah a little bit of proactive rewiring oh if only there was a workshop that (laughs) would discuss that and give you a slow step plan for it so great segue into workshops go for it So, yeah, so we've um, uh, relatively recently, just in the last year, uh, yeah, put together the workshop on this stuff that we wish we'd had when we were younger. Um, So, yeah, Tess, you've spoken about a little already. Yeah, Curious Creatures runs a variety of other workshops, uh, mostly around communication and touch and consent, but it's uh, a model of consent which I think is more about 
positively, proactively drawing a partner to what you do want rather than just a no message, although obviously that's crucial. Um, but yeah, most people respond better to a um, being specifically and positively told what they want. So yeah, lots of opportunities to work out what someone's interests are and work out how to communicate that. Um, yeah, ranging from the cautious through to the very adventurous uh, play party we run called Curiosity. Sounds amazing. And uh, where can people find your website and how do people sign up for the workshops? Website is at curiouscreatures.biz, B-I-Z. And there's a uh, email list which folks can sign up to there. I also advertise the non-monogamy workshop via my business page, Connectable Therapies. Um, but... Curious Creatures has all of the workshops, so I'd recommend going via that page. Brilliant. So we'll have those details attached to this podcast. Oh, my God. I want to thank Roger and Tess for coming in on, on the Bipolycast today. Thanks so much for coming in and talking polyamory with me. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Anthony. I've enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been very intriguing, very interesting, and in so many ways, uh, lots of familiar stuff coming up, which is really great. We need community. We need it to be accessible to people. There are lots of spaces that are emerging for people who want to practice ethical non-monogamy and to do it more visibly. Yeah, I really agree. One of the reasons I moved back to Melbourne is because we have a reasonably solid community of uh, non-monogamous folks here. So big shout out to Polly Vic and the various other resources that we happen to have here makes such a difference to the journey. Brilliant. So if you want to catch the other Bipolycast uh, episodes, you can go to joy.org.au forward slash triple bypass and look for the Bipolycast podcast. So thanks for the supporting the show. And don't forget to tune in every Tuesday night at 9pm to Triple Bypass to all of the gang, new faces, fresh ideas. Thanks for listening. You are on Joy 94.9. And there you go. The workshop that we're talking about uh, is called Opening Up to Opening Up, uh, and it's going to be back in Melbourne soon uh, and also online. Uh, So make sure that you're signed up to our mailing list, uh, which you can do via our website, curiouscreatures.biz. I'm also running an online version of Fun Little Sex Games, by the way, on June the 28th. Uh, This is for couples, um, but basically that just means uh, anyone that you're comfortable doing touch exercises with. Um, Yeah, again, check out the website and or get on the mailing list. Just want to say a couple of things about this podcast. Um, I don't often check my statistics. I was a little bit delighted to have a look the other day and found out that uh, there are about six or 7,000 of you, um, which is amazing. It actually puts this podcast in about the top 5% uh, of uh, all podcasts. Um, so that's amazing. Uh, for one thing, you are not alone. If you're enjoying this content, um, yeah, there's a whole community of you. And I also just wanted to say a very big thank you because um, – I'm pretty sure that literally the only way that people hear about this podcast is from folks like you uh, telling other people um, that uh, this is a podcast they might be interested in. Um, You know, that whole like uh, ad I stick in the middle about the uh, funny dodgy kind of contract (laughs) that I propose. Uh, So you've obviously been doing that and I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, It makes this all the more worthwhile to do. And uh, it's been about four years, so it's probably about time I did some credits. 
Uh, it's a pretty small team here at Curious Conversations about sex. Uh, to the extent that shows are actually written by anyone, then they're written by me. Uh, the guitar riff in the background and at the start, uh, that's me. And uh, sorry about the quality. Uh, I hadn't touched my guitar in many years and my fingers were absolutely killing me as I was recording it. But hey, I needed some theme music quickly and uh, here we are. And those uh, drum riffs, that's me sitting in the darkness in the old Pulse venue for those of you that have been around for a few years. And the audio engineering has been me right up until... Um, well, like, I don't know if you noticed, but the sound quality got a lot better about uh, six months ago. Uh, that's because uh, from about that time, audio engineering has been done by Aman Dembla over in our India office. Uh, thanks, Aman. You tweak good. And also, just a big massive thanks to my friends uh, who helped me out with ideas here and there, or proof listening to episodes before I release them, and various other things. Uh, you're all freaking ace, and I'm one lucky lady to have you. Links to everything mentioned in today's show are in the show notes. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. You can find us at curiouscreatures.biz. B-I-Z. B-I-Z.